You know what's funny is I walked into this episode thinking, ah, I don't really care for this episode. I got about half of the way through it before I realized I was thinking of the wrong episode. <laughs> I was thinking of Ensigns of Command, which I'll talk about later. But episodes like this are always the roughest ones for me to do videos on for the show, because what the heck do I say about it? I have some stuff to say about the Troy thing, but the main plot is just kind of there. It's not bad, you know, and there's some good stuff, but then there's some stuff that's just kind of... Really? It's interesting, because Ronald D. Moore uh, apparently really struggled with this one. See, originally they were just kind of throwing this together, and you know, there was this whole pitch uh, from the guy who made, who wrote uh, Gambit, the spec script for Gambit. So they're like, okay, that means we're going to be doing a episode down on the planet, which means they have to have as an episode set on the existing bridge, or excuse me, uh, sets, the existing sets of the Enterprise, in order to save money. So they're like, okay, well, what episode, what, what else can we do with that? Well, funnily enough, Taylor and Moore both agreed that they wanted to do something else with Troy's character. And, I mean, sure, yeah, it's the final line through episode, season freaking seven here, but, you know, why not? Let's, let's go ahead and try to move Troy's character one micromillimeter forward. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm being disingenuous. I do actually like the Troy side of this thing. In fact, I like it better than the rest of it, which is saying something. But anyways, <clears throat> uh, so they wanted to do this. They wanted to move it. Like, okay. <sighs> but Moore himself had something to say about it, which is why I moved this aside so I could read this. And I quote, I have mixed feelings about the episode. As a writer, I never figured out what it was about. I didn't know what I was trying to say, and it was probably the most difficult writing experience I had on the show because I was very frustrated. It was a bad time in the season. I was tired. I was not having fun. I think it showed in the writing. And yeah, it does. <laughs> I hate to say that. I hate to confirm that. It's not bad. If this is Ronald D. Moore on his off days, then, I mean, that confirms what I've said many times about the man's quality as a writer. Nevertheless, you can tell that the crunch was getting to him. Remember, this was also when they were working on the frickin' movie. So, I should probably say movies, but still, there was a lot of extra work being done at the time. They were working on three TV shows and a movie all at the same time. This a little bit too much. I mean, could you imagine if we had too much Star Trek happening at the same time? Like, say, one animated show, and then one main show, and then a spin-off show, and then another spin-off show. Anyways, so they're like, okay, let's go ahead and do the Troy thing. After all, they've been ha they've been tossing ide the idea of promoting Troy since liaisons, liaison, excuse me, which I'm pretty sure I talked about back then. And the episode begins on that point, Crusher being in command and them kind of retconning some stuff because, well, put bluntly, they actually mention that Crusher had no interest in command in previous episodes, but you know how that is with Star Trek, right? We all just kind of assume season one isn't actually canon, and we just move on. Alpha canon, am I right? Anyways, so they had the reunion, paths not taken, and of course Troy mentions disaster as one of her specific motives for wanting to move forward with this. She wanted to try and stretch herself in a new direction, and that is in many ways kind of the Star Trek thing in a nutshell. I've actually talked about this concept many times. This is arguably the first episode to directly address it, although, funnily enough, just last week, Lower Decks did the exact same thing. I want to be promoted. Why? Do you get paid more? No. Do you get any tangible, practical benefit from being promoted? No. However, it's something you want. You are driven to do it. You want 
to be in that new position. You want that new authority. You want that to push or stretch yourself, right? So you push for promotion. I, I, I know that sounds so silly, but I like that idea. I have to admit, as an incredibly and indeed overly ambitious person myself, that kind of ideal uh, inspires me. You know, the idea that someday we might be able to push beyond just, well, I'd do that, and it'd be awesome, but then how would I pay the bills? Anyways. So, she pushes for it. I'm with it. And then we cut to Data. I'll come back to that, though. Let's stick with, let's stick with Troy for a moment. So, Riker and Troy have actually probably the best scene of the whole episode, where she comes in and he talks to her through his trombone for a bit. No, I, I mean, like, how was, how was your music? I think it was decent. <laughs> it's actually a funny little scene, and it's, I think, the roughly 7,000th scene. You can quote me on that. The 7,000th scene in which Riker and Troy just have really good chemistry and work really well together. They'll finally end up together as a couple in the last movie, the 10th movie. Well, I mean, the, the third, excuse me, fourth TNG movie. But, um, whatever, moving on, moving on. Good dynamic between the two. I just wanted to compliment that. And so she mentions again, you know, disaster and how she wanted to push that, how she wants to aspire and ambition, blah, blah, blah. And he really hesitates. And I know this sounds like a strange thing, but for the second time uh, in two weeks, I really feel bad for Riker because he's in the position of being the boss. And I already commented on how hard it is to be a boss for people who, you know, you know, and maybe like. It's much harder to be the boss for your friend. That position sucks. I have actually been in that position myself a couple of times, and it's not a fun position to be in. Because um, it's one of those, you know, the, the job has to take priority. You know, I like you, I care about you, you matter to me. Um, but that all leaves at the door when it comes to, you know, actually getting things done. And that sucks. That's a, that's a mentality that sucks that, you know, you, you can kind of feel for Riker and what he's going through. Because he flat out says, you know, I'm going to be a harsh judge. And she's like, okay. So they kind of skip over most of the tests, and she passes just about everything. You notice diplomacy was big on there, which is actually very good, because you'd think a command line officer would have diplomatic experience. And joking aside, you'd think that someone like Troy would actually be very good at diplomacy. Then it comes to the engineering test. Now, I actually kind of like this. So to be blunt, I do think Riker gave her too much slack here. I know I just said that you have to leave the friendship at the door, but in my opinion, Riker didn't. He gave her way too many shots to figure this out and basically gave her the answer, although he did it clandestinely. But still, the fact that he just kept saying, no, you can, you can try it again. No, you can try it again. Keep trying. And it took a while for him to finally pull the plug and be like, all right, look. Because here's the problem. It didn't even occur to her to order someone to their death. It wasn't even on his mind. It's not like she was like, I refuse. It didn't even process. And that's the problem. Because a commander, a military leader, needs to be aware of the fact that they are going to have to order people to their deaths. That is a reality. I've talked about this before. It's part of the paradox of command. Um, and so the idea here is that it should have occurred to her before then that the answer was to send someone in there to fix this. Obviously, this is not the real LaForge that we see in the final simulation. But when she asks him, he hesitates for a moment, just one moment, says, yeah, I think I could do it. And when she orders him in, he says, okay. Because that makes perfect sense. In the crisis moment, the ship is about to be destroyed. 
one person, I, I'm pretty sure LaForge would volunteer for that, except for the fact that that's not the real LaForge, and this is a test to ensure that she has the ability to order someone to do that. But in that kind of situation, of course he'd go to, ki to basically die in order to save the ship. I'm pretty sure most of the crew would make that call. That's kind of the point. But the point for the test is that she has to be the one to come to that solution first. She has to look at the position. She has to look down all her little units. She has to select all, and then A move, A move. And in order to see what the actual solution is, see what is necessary to fix the, fix the problem, and then realize the cost of that solution. And she didn't. It had to be pointed out for her. When it came down to it, she was willing to make that call under hesitation. And notice that she says that that disqualifies her. Allow me to give my incredibly incorrect and in wrong and terrible and awful opinion and say that that is the kind of mentality you need to have when you're a commander. No, really. If you reach the point where you casually and unhesitatingly say, yeah, go die, then something's wrong. You might say, well, what if they need that? Okay, that's possible. And it is possible that in the moment you need to not hesitate. That's a valid thing. But I don't think we should ever reach the point where we don't care about ordering people to their deaths. Call me a weirdo. So Troy, this is, this is actually the reason, in my opinion, why Riker does let her pass the test. Not because of the fact that she was willing to order him to his death, which is the relatively easy part of that. It's the fact that it impacted her so much, and then she still did it. To, uh, frankly, stretch the definition a bit, in this moment, Troy was a Cisco and not a Justice Lord. <sighs> you know, when I first came up with that particular Lorium, I had no idea I would be referencing it so much when we came to TNG and DS9, but here we are! <laughs> I also love how the scene after Riker comes in his computer and simulation. I like how somber both of them are. He doesn't treat it like it's a joke. He doesn't river or anything. He's just like, hey, you know, I understand. And she's just floored by it. Even though it was just a simulation, she clearly feels terrible about it. And she should. And he should. It's a good scene. It's good stuff. It's good character stuff. Which then leads us to the Frankenstein's monster plot of Data. <clears throat> so, Data shows up, vocal cords don't work, good touch, and is having trouble communicating, okay. And is, is you know, he's, okay, he's going to try and figure the things out. Um, later on in this very episode, he will relate very complex words. Uh, in fact, I actually wrote one down here, if you'll give me just a second. Well, let's see here. Oh, it's... Uh, one moment. I say I wrote someone down. That's actually a lie. I uh, didn't write it down. Because someone else wrote it down for me. Uh, with an increased focal length and an achromatic objective lens, this instrument will have a higher effective magnification. So he says that and understands all of the words. Why doesn't he know what the word radioactive means? This actually irritates the ever-loving crap out of me, and it's actually one of the weakest parts of the episode, in my opinion, because the entire episode hinges on the fact that he is carrying a, a, a thing that says radioactive, a big red ink on it, and he doesn't know what the word radio radioactive means, even though he is still capable of just about everything else he needs to be capable of. This irritates the crap out of me. 
<laughs> because it's it, it, this is the cloud effect in a nutshell. This is a decent enough episode, but this premise is flimsy and flawed and weak. What's really frustrating is it would be incredibly easy to fix. Just nix the radioactive part. Oh, not the fact that it is radioactive. Get rid of the word. What's this? I don't know. I was carrying it. And there's nothing written on it because it's just, I mean, it doesn't need to be written, right? It's, uh, it's got big warning labels. It says do not open. Maybe it's got a display diagram or something. But the point is it's just a case. It's just a lead freaking suitcase and that's all it is. And he opens it up and there's some metal inside. We can figure out pretty quickly what's going on. We have brains. It's okay. And then you just kind of smooth out the episode demonstrably by that one little change. What do you guys think? I'm actually curious, because I don't actually talk about this episode all that often, and as I'll talk about in a second, I keep forgetting it with another episode, so what's your opinion? You know, everyone pauses and says, you're dumb, Lore, and I hate you. Oh, wait, I thought this is Lore Reloaded. You're dumb, Lore Runner. Anyways, <clears throat> so we see Tellor. She comes in. We have examination. We have scientific progress. No, you are an ice man. Ha ha. <laughs> I get what they're going for here. And it's funny. Um, it is nice to see how relatively helpful and well, nice most of the people are at this point. It's a little tidbit that kind of helps put things into a little bit of perspective. And would have worked a lot better if they had a larger cast or better guest stars. Uh, so they take it out, this slightly warm metal. And they're like, huh, maybe we could sell this at the market to get you some money. It is a little warm to the touch. Now, this right here is why I say the radioactive thing, completely unnecessary. Because the moment we see that they open a large, heavy case, they, they demonstrate already that's very heavy, and there's this weird molten metal in which is warm to the touch, that's pretty much all we need to know. We don't even need to know specifically that it is radioactive. We can piece that together later when they specifically call out that the skin is showing signs of as if it's been burnt. However, in that moment, that's clearly, oh God, you know, clearly it was in there for a reason and it shouldn't be taken out. And so we already have the Hitchcock effect. I, that's not actually what it's called. I've talked about this before. Hitchcock has posited uh, the different types of knowing. Uh, the character knows, the audience doesn't. The character does not know, the audience does, and both parties know. That's the three types of suspense. This is, we know, they don't. And so we are now like, oh my god, no, you know, don't go in there, the monster's in there, right? That's, that's that type of suspense. And it's very effective at the way they do it, because everyone's just kind of like, yeah, sure, we'll make some jewelry out of uranium or whatever the heck this is, right? Then we see the anvil scene. I wonder if Ronald D. Moore was a big fan of Twilight Zone back in the day. I've never actually looked into that, because this is basically a Twilight Zone episode. And no, really, it's, it's cut in place. The only things that are different is the fact that Data survives the end of the episode. And, of course, the reset button is hit. We'll get there. Because in a typical Twilight Zone episode, you know, a strange person shows up and has some unusual things, but then he does some weird thing to help people out, and everyone starts to become afraid of him, and people start to blame him and anger him, they torch pitch, and then they stab him and they kill him, but it turns out he was the only one who was trying to save them all along. It's a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> like, copy-paste almost. I'm not saying it's literally ripped out. I mean, it, it is the tonality and style and approach of a Twilight Zone episode. Which, of course then leads us to <laughs> uh, the first signs of the illness when they start to show that kind of thing. Now, 
the illness starts to demonstrate itself bit by bit, weakness, and then fever, and then lesions, and then hair falling out. Yeah, by this point, we've figured out it's radiation poisoning. Now, <laughs> I know this is Star Trek and we basically have magic, but I don't know if you're aware of this. Radiation is incredibly destructive to biological matter and a lot of things, actually. Later on in this episode, Data is going to cure an entire village's worth of radiation poisoning with a serum. Not a hypospray, which is already ridiculous, or some kind of, you know, medical treatment or regenerative... No, no, he's, he's going to... They're going to drink something and they'll be fine. <sighs> Meanwhile, um, we have Tellur. Now, I actually have a note I wrote down here, which is... For all of Tellur's failings, which include her being a little bit uppity and being a little bit stuck in her ways and being a little bit obstinate, I was going to say something positive about her. But I, again, I was kind of misremembering the episode, so I kind of had to scribble all that out because she's kind of like she's the closest thing to an ally he has, other than the daughter and the husband, or the husband, the, the older guy, the father. There we go. The father, the daughter, and the, the medic. But she's kind of just there. She's there to be the, oh, I know nothing, so Data can look smart against her character. That is literally her purpose, is to say something incorrect so Data can correct her. It's one, it, it happens like three or four times, and each time it's like, ugh, it's one of the weakest parts of the episode for me personally, other than the radioactive thing. Just, okay. It's a well-known fact. Well, who's perceived that fact? No one. Well, how is it a well-known fact? Well, we all know it to be true. But what? <laughs> sure. So I mentioned the whole uh, ensigns of command thing. So Scorin comes in, right? And they're like, oh, this is all your fault. And he attacks him with a pickaxe. Now, based on all evidence, that was an attack intended to kill. So they were already trying to kill this guy. Just to straight up. And uh, that's, that's, that's kind of messed up to begin with. But... He survives, and he's scarred, and he has no idea. What am I? Oh, my God. He is Frankenstein's monster. Um, this is when I started being like, hang on. Where's the other guy? Like, right about this point of the episode, I started... Actually, it was more like five minutes before now, but I was like, where the hell's the other guy? Where's the, the, the local villager who's going to be like, I'm going to destroy Data, and I'm going to prove that I'm right? That's when I started mixing this episode up, or rather realized I was mixing this episode up with Ensigns of Command in my mind, which is season three, episode two, I think? Where Goshevin, or Goshevin, excuse me, was the character instead of Scorin. And uh, I don't really have a good excuse for that, except both episodes have involved Data going to a primitive village and then helping them out and trying to work with the rules. And then one person's obstinate, decides to be a villain for basically no reason, and then tries to kill him. And then basically doesn't succeed, or basically does, depending on the circumstances. You can see I'm just kind of racing through this, because there's just not a lot to talk about this part of the game. Or show, part of the show. So Data comes up with a serum to cure radiation sickness. Then Data goes to pour it in the well and hesitates when people show up for some reason. Then he pours it in and they stab him and he dies. Uh, and that would be the end of the Twilight Zone. Like he falls over and they all look at him like, oh my god. And then, you know, turns out Data was actually trying to cure them the entire time. I can't do it, Rod Sterling, but you get the idea. And then the episode completely fails. Picard has his one line of the episode, because Patrick Stewart was off doing A Christmas Carol, and 
then we have the episode ends on a wah wah, which TNG doesn't do normally. Like they did that back in season one, and they kind of moved away from that. And Data forgets the entire episode. <sighs> Thanks, episode. You know, there's an episode over in Voyager. I don't remember which one. I want to say it's Relativity. It's Relativity. I'm right, I'm right. Where Janeway remembers the events of the episode. And for all of the flaws of that episode, that was the one thing I championed. I cheered at that. You know why? Because it's so normal for them to hit the reset button and not remember anything about what happened. That drives me batty. Because even if the events don't happen, if the characters remember them, there is some consequence. There's some impact. There's some continuity and it has some relevance if the events of the episode never happened then nothing then it doesn't matter and it never did right and basically this irritates me for the exact same reason that most people are irritated by the it was all just a dream concept because it might as well be they'll never know what happened and all, all of the events down there nah nothing just data's up and like oh okay back to work hi troy you got promoted that's cool the end Drives me nuts. Now I know what you're thinking. Lore, you're dumb and stupid. You're right. I am dumb and stupid. Look at me. But what I would have done, because I don't like to criticize without critiquing, what I would have done is I would have him freaking remember, and because he, he is now attached to the town and the family that helped him, and he wants to make sure they're okay, he either mentions something about keeping up with them, you know, reading reports from the, the local duck blind or whatever, or maybe suggesting setting up a duck blind in the area, or maybe wanting to check up on it himself in the future, you know, obviously not personally because he died, but you get the idea. Just something, some manner by which to try and follow through on this. And then Picard says, Prime Directive! Blah, blah. And that's... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm actually picturing... I was speaking facetiously, but imagine if I was speaking literally. <sighs> Sir, I would like to request the permission to go and check back on the... Blah, prime Directive! Prime Directive! Sir, sir, please, don't have an epileptic fit. I understand the... Prime, prime Directive! Prime, prime Directive! Okay, sir, very well. I will not violate the Prime Directive in this manner, even though I already have. Prime Directive. Uh, ultimately, a somewhat uh, unmemorable episode. And not bad, you know, not bad. Season 7's kind of better than I remember so far, which is funny, because I've been having the exact opposite opinion of DS9. <laughs> Either way, it's time to move forward to... Oh. Right. Okay. I'm going to tell you this now, because obviously now I haven't seen the next episode. The next episode is Masaka is Waking, and um, the name of the episode is Masks. I remember despising that episode, and it's it's been on my skip list for years. So I'm going to rewatch it pretty much immediately after this. I'm going to shut this down and set up the next thing. And I'm really curious how it's actually going to be with Analysis Mode on. I'll see you next time, guys. Oh, sorry, I should do it like this.